All right, guys, welcome back. This is Luke here, and um, I want to talk a little bit about infrared sauna. Uh, a few weeks ago, I'm not sure how, I'm not exactly sure how it came up. I think somebody was just looking for uh, a little extra uh, module of recovery, um, and, and they were looking at, you know, doing this and that and a little bit of everything, but uh, um, I hadn't really heard that much about infrared saunas. It just, I mean, that's my own on me. I just probably wasn't paying attention. But um, it's like one of those things where you hear it once and then you seem to see it everywhere. And I started seeing it at some of the recovery places around by where I live. Um, started seeing articles about it, things like that. So I definitely became a little more interested in it. And I wanted to kind of answer, be able to answer questions in the future and then just kind of give you my take on it. And so, you know, that's the whole point of today is I just want to talk about infrared sauna as a mode of recovery uh, as well as a performance booster. And as I looked, it was really, really hard to find quality third-party data or the research itself. You know, if you go on a search engine and you type in whatever keywords you want to use, it seems like everything that came up was sauna manufacturers or personal trainers who were writing it about how they use it with their clients and stuff like that. So there's a lot of, you know, information you have to take with a grain of salt, right? And so it was a little bit tough, but then what you have to do in that situation is you have to look at what research they are citing and then look at it, look at that. And so um, some research from like New Zealand and Europe and, uh, but to be honest with you, they all seem to cite the same few articles. So to me, that just tells me there's not a ton out there right now. And I'm sure that will change over time, but right now it just seems like it's pretty, it's fairly limited to say the least. Um, it doesn't seem like there's a ton out there, but uh, so I just, I would say, take that with a grain of salt and do your own due diligence as well, especially if you're going to invest in this yourself. But uh, so, just the general benefits listed that I've seen in all the articles I looked at. You know, the first one was heat, heat adaptation, which is an easy one to buy into, right? If you subject yourself to a hot environment, you're going to adapt to those environments, right? That's not a, I don't think that's a stretch of the imagination at all. Second thing was lung function. Uh, I couldn't find much info than this, but not sure the mechanism would actually be. Um, what I was re reading was more improved immune function and kind of being able to fight off respiratory illnesses better. I don't know how accurate that is. That's just kind of what I saw. So I don't know how much I'd take into the, to the lung function. The third thing was direct performance improvement. So time to exhaustion improved 30% in one group, which translated into a 2% actual race performance, which you know, is pretty significant regardless, you know, who you are. I mean, I would definitely take a 2% improvement. We're willing to buy shoes that will give us a 2% improvement. Uh, so pretty significant there. Uh, one of the, and this is a quote from Dr. Stacy Stims, which you probably, especially ladies out there, probably recognize, recognize that name with her women's, um, women's training books and um, things like that. I think she's got a cookbook out now as well. Um, but she is a uh, PhD exercise physiologist, and she is, this is a quote, one of the primary factors in endurance muscle fatigue is the drop in blood volume, says exercise physiologist Dr. Stacy Sims of Stanford's Prevention Research Center. Sauna training helps counter this by increasing EPO, 
which people pay a lot of money to inject into their body. Through this, both plasma volume and red blood cell count. It would be set super beneficial for any endurance athlete. Think of it as a na another natural ergonomic aid in your arsenal that one that can provide a two to three percent boost in performance. So again, pretty significant. Huh? I, I wouldn't argue with that. And then the fourth thing was muscle growth. And that just goes with what we just talked about above. Um, if you can do all those things, at the very least, you're going to maintain muscle mass um, and then set yourself up so that if you are strength training, you will actually build muscle tissue on top of that. And then the fifth thing I saw was free radical consumption, you know, getting rid of toxins in the body. Um, and I'm guessing it's just sweating toxins out of the body. Maybe it was so obvious that I'm just not really sure, but it didn't seem like anybody really talked about how it just said that's what it did. Um, and I'm assuming it's from the sweat mechanism, um, just sitting in a sauna and sweating it out. So, uh, so as I look through all that and looking through the articles and things like that, I see that there might be potential, but however, and this is a really big however, uh, I look at this and I also come to the conclusion that this should only be supplementary. And by, by that I mean you're not just relying on this. Um, if you are relying just on this, then you're probably not going to see a ton of benefit. You might actually see a decrease in performance and recovery just because you're not um, doing all those other things that would support sitting in a hot environment for up to 30 minutes. Um, you still have to put most of the reliance on the basics like proper refueling, getting enough daily calories and making sure you are hydrated, especially in this because you're putting yourself into another stressful environment. So training is a stressful environment and this is a stressful environment, especially if you're doing it right after your exercise. You're continuing that stress of the exercise that you just did. And so if you are not rehydrating and doing all the support things that you need to do, then I think it'll just potentially negate any potential benefit. And given that, um, I really think there's two situations where this would help people. But again, you have to, especially the hydration is huge on that because think about how much your excess you're going to be sweating. And if you're already sweating through the exercise, that just adds more to it. So. In these types of situations, I mean, you could see a ton of dehydration. Some of the studies I looked at said they didn't, but they were also drinking a liter and a half of water during their time in the sauna, which is a significant amount. But anyway, the first thing I see is heat adaptation, and especially in these winter months, as I'm writing, as I'm talking right now, it's you know the first part of December. Um, but the main theory behind infrared versus traditional sauna is that the light creating heat is directed right into the, your body instead of just warming the air around you. And that's not a theory, that's how it actually works. I don't, theory was probably the wrong word there. Um, but the actual theory is that you can elicit the same effects as moderate exercise. So um, things like sweating, heart rate increase, metabolism increases, things like that. All those same things that would happen during exercise you can get by sitting in a sauna. Um, and so where I see that as a benefit right now is that, you know, I'm writing this in December. Um, people are starting to get ready for spring marathons. If you're running an April marathon, it can be one of those things where it's 40 degrees. It could be 80 degrees. Um, and the later you get into spring, the more chance you have of that happening. And so you want to be ready for that. And it's hard to, like, you can wear more clothes, but that only gets you so far, right? Like, that's not necessarily going to be the same benefit as actually training in heat. And so infrared sauna definitely I see could be an advantage here where you could um, start those heat adaptations and at least not have the same effect as if you went from, say, Michigan where I'm at and having it be, you know, training in 
you know, sub-freezing conditions with snow and all that, and they go to a race where it's all of a sudden it's 65 or 70 degrees, and it's a big hit on your system, and you really take a toll on your performance. So I do, I do think for heat adaptation, especially during the winter months, could be really big. I also see it too, like if you're running a, say, a, um, you know, Berlin would be a good example where you're running a late September or an early October marathon. And so that means your training starts in early June, but you're in the, you're kind of in that tail end of spring where you'll have some cold days, some, some warm days. This could actually jumpstart those heat adaptations so that when you get to July and it's really warm and in August when it's really warm, you've given yourself maybe an extra month of getting some heat adaptation. So that could be like an entry level into heat adaptation so that by the time those really warm, humid days do roll around, you're in a much better position to tolerate those better. So you don't have to go through kind of that same uh, struggle period that we mostly go through when we start training for those summer marathons and all of a sudden those hot days all of a sudden hit us and we're not ready for them. This could kind of bridge the gap from not having any exposure to, you know, that full-time exposure to the heat and humidity. Second thing I see is uh, dealing with an injury, particularly a muscle, muscular injury. injury. Uh, this could be an opportunity to help stimulate exercise adaptations while safeguarding yourself from rushing back too soon. So I see a real benefit from doing like whatever cross training you're gonna do, maybe you're swimming, maybe you're biking, whatever's not making that injury worse, but helping you get some exercise in and then going into a sauna type situation um, and then you know promoting further promoting those exercise adaptations um, keeping, um, keeping your cal or your metabolism high is key. Keeping your muscular um, build is is key. So if you if you're not exercising, what's happening? You're you're going to start atrophying to some extent. This can actually keep that up. And if you can do some sort of strength training during your injury, this can ultimately help you not only now to recover, but also long term as you as you um, come back from that injury. Um, but yeah, I definitely see where you could you could use that. Um, as part of your recovery tool and recovering sooner from, from a muscular type injury. Um, so I talked about the one theory or the one argument with infrared, but the other one is that the deeper penetrating heat can offer feelings of well-being and it does promote tissue and hormone regulation. So again, um, you know, just kind of put yourself in an environment to heal, right? So sweat out those toxins, you know, warm those tissues up, flush the, flush the injury out, promote the blood flow throughout the body and, and and uh, this type of heat is actually going to do it. You can it can penetrate two to four inches into the body, which is a significant. Like putting a heat pad on yourself isn't necessarily going to give give you that same benefit. So, it's a, just a more focused energy on where you're you know overall where you're where you're hurting and just in, in general just promoting that blood flow, promoting that release of the toxins. But again, the key is that you have to be replacing all that stuff with especially fluids and nutrients. If you're not replacing those things then all you're doing is sweating them out and along with the toxins and then you're not really doing much benefit as, as, as well. So, all right, so those are two big situations where I see benefit. Um, some protocols I came across, one is from Purple Patch Triathlon Coaching. They're very well known, uh, very successful group. They have their own um, protocol. So they do it, and this is for heat adaptations. Um, pr they do it post-workout, so key sessions. So for you guys, that would be your SOS days. Um, hydrate and fuel as, as normal as you would during a key session. So don't stop practicing with your fluid intake, your, your, your uh, gel intake, stuff like that. Then the last 10 to 15 minutes of the session, no hydration. The only thing I'm not certain on here is, does that mean like the cool down or the workout? 
maybe play around with that. I would almost take that as just nothing during the cool down because that's going to be a 10 to 15 minute thing for most people. And then refuel post-workout, so get some of that protein and carbs in um, right away because you don't want to you don't want the muscle to just not have the fuel to replace itself. Um, we're not that's not what our mode for this is. We're we're still wanting the body to recover. We're just putting it in a different kind of stress. They do say no post hydration, um, which I don't fully understand, but um, I'm assuming that it has to do with just um, those overall heat adaptations where. Um, you know, uh, this is kind of promoting you to better take in hydration when you do. I don't know. Um, 15 to 30 minutes in the sauna. Uh, no fluid in the sauna. Uh, shower post sauna and then rehydrate over the next three to five hours. So I'm looking at that and I, you know, I would actually maybe kind of do the hydration. <laughs> I think you might be because if you do all that, if you, uh, you just want to be very careful uh, on there. You don't want to be super lightheaded dehydrated to the point where it's going to be a significant loss um, but you try it see how you want ease into it i would definitely ease into it i wouldn't make your first session 30 minutes i would start with maybe 10 to 15 minutes do that a few times and, and gradually add that time over the course of the sessions that you do so if you're doing it post sos days that's a maximum of two to three days a week that you would be doing it mostly you're probably only going to be doing it one to two times a week so um, you'll have to do it several months along the line in order to actually see continual benefit from that. But a uh, big thing at the end of that is rehydrate the next three to five hours. I would make sure I include electrolytes, things like that in my fluid. So the only thing I'll say to that is if you're a nighttime uh, workout runner, that might be tough, right? So if you don't work out till like 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the evening, um, are you going to be up at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night to make sure you're rehydrating? I don't, I don't necessarily know that that would be something you would have to work that maybe move, maybe you can move your workout time up a little bit. Um, you know, but so if you're a five o'clock exerciser, I don't think you'd have a problem. Even a six o'clock probably would be okay. You'd have like, um, from seven till 10, you'd have to really be focusing on that rehydration though. So it might make nighttime routines a little different, right? You don't want to be just peeing all night either. So that might have to be some work, do some workout on your on your end. That's why another reason I'm a big fan of morning workouts. I just think it sets your whole day off. But then again, you might not have time for the sauna in the morning. So you just kind of have to change this as you go, you know, do your own adjustments on here. Um, the second one is for recovery in general, uh, general recovery, um, three to four times per week, 10 to 15 minutes to the start, and then build up to 30 minute sessions. Um, post exercise would be your ideal things so you know maybe it's more running and, and i don't think like if you did this it's not like you wouldn't get heat adaptations it wouldn't be probably as strong as the heat adaptation protocol but um, i still think you'd probably get some heat adaptation to that so i don't know maybe you just do that because then i think too like if you really had to if you worked out in the morning and you couldn't do anything until the after work or something like that maybe you go hit the sauna after work I still think you could probably do it. You just have to recognize it might not be the same benefits or the same volume of the benefits, but you probably still get something out of it. That's something you would do some trial and error with. Um, but those, uh, I think those are good places to start, right? Those kind of use those as your, as your baseline. And then overall, I think it's a good tool to have in the toolbox, especially if you have access to this. You don't have to go out and buy an infrared sauna. 
um, spend drop a few grand on that. Um, if you want to, sure, go ahead. But you know, if you're at a gym where they have that, um, or you have a personal trainer that has that, or you go to a recovery place where now I'm seeing a lot more cryo and infrared sauna along with like the boots and stuff like that, um, maybe that's something you want to invest in to start with. But uh, yeah, it's a good tool to have. I, but it just, like I said, it can't be your only tool in the toolbox. Um, you still have to be very, very diligent, especially with something like this and really be focusing on making sure you get enough hydration, making sure you're getting the nutrients in that will help with that recovery, with those adaptations, things like that. But it definitely can be added to the repertoire. And I really think like right now is, is it makes me really start to kind of rethink how we train for um, late spring marathons where it is going to be warmer um, and uh, how we can get our athletes really maybe into a better position where they won't be so um, uh, set back in performance if they've already if they're able to get some of these heat adaptation heat adaptations from something like the inference on it. So something to think about, um, you know, maybe ask for a membership for Christmas or whatever uh, to a recovery place. I'm sure they would be happy to have you. But uh, again, something to think about um, and something to help people answer some questions as they uh, debate what they would like to do. So with that, I will uh, I will let you go. Uh, if you haven't already, um, make sure you're checking out our community on LukeComfreyRunning.com. We have added the Run Club Lite membership, which is $14.95 a month, or you have a, a yearly option, which will save you. You're basically paying for 10 months and getting 12 months at a time where you have access to our premium courses, our groups. So like right now, we're starting up the spring marathon groups. You'd, full, you'd have full access to those. The only thing you don't have in the Run Club Lite is the training plans, but if you're using... A, a training plan you've already purchased or you're using um, the book plans, whatever the case is, but you just want that little bit of extra kind of coaching from a group standpoint, it's a great option to have instead of, you know, going all in on, a, on an individual coaching type of situation. So I personally think it's a great option for you. It gives you access to those courses, access to those groups, chats when we do them, all that good stuff, um, a good way to get more individualized attention um, without breaking the bank on the coaching. Um, and then we also have the Run Club, which is essentially the Run Club Lite, but you have access to all of our training plans in Final Surge. You have access to Final Surge and all the cool stuff that they have, structured workouts. You can customize your schedules to fit however you want. I personally have over 200 training plans in my um, library, so I can find we can find you a plan to fit whatever needs you have. Um, so that's something to think about as well. Uh, and you can scope all that out, LukeHumphreyRunning.com slash memberships. So I think we'll take you to the, the memberships we have and uh, make sure you check that out. If not, I will talk to you all later on the next one. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye.